This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. to the CMS Colloquium. Our talk today is by Lawrence Kuttner and Cheryl Olson, The Myth and Politics of Media Violence Research. Um, let me read you a little bit about our speakers. Um, Lawrence Kuttner, PhD, and Cheryl Olson, SCD, are co-founders and co-directors of the Center for Me- Mental Health and Media at Massachusetts General Hospital, a good facility I visited recently. Uh, they're both on the psychiat- psychiatry f- faculty of Harvard Medical School. Kuttner received his Ph.D. from the University of Minnesota and trained at the Mayo Clinic. He's a licensed psychologist and a fellow of the American Psychological Association. He wrote the Parent and Child column for the New York Times, as well as five books on child development. Olson was principal investigator for a $1.5 million study funded by the U.S. Department of Justice on the effects of video games on young teenagers which formed the basis of their book, Grand Theft Childhood. She has a Doctor of Science degree in Health and Social Behavior from Harvard School of Public Health and a postdoctoral certificate in pharmacological medicine from the University of Basel. And I became aware of this book over the summer, in part thanks to Clara Fernandez, who really brought it to the CMS community and really made us aware of it. And I was fascinated by what I've heard of it so far, the research so far. As it says, it's unexpected truths about our surprising truths about media violence. I'm used to sort of having quarrels with people in the medical and psychological profession around this issue, and it's, it's refreshing to see so, a, a space where there's an opportunity for dialogue and conversation on a topic of interest to our community and to the Harvard medical world. So let me turn it over to them. Okay. Well, thank you. We're going to be tag-teaming this. Uh, so I get to sit do, down. That, yeah, you get to sit down. <laughs> if you can't tell, I'm Larry Kuttner. That's Cheryl Wilson. <laughs> uh, and what I wanted to do is to put this in perspective, not just share data with you. Uh, we recently had the opportunity to visit some people at Gambit, which was fascinating. Uh, and we inspired this. I'd like to believe we're redefining the way future generations will waste their time. Uh, What I'd like to do is begin by going over some of the history of media concerns. Shakespeare was right, the past is prologue. And that can give us some insights into what's going on now and what we can expect in the future. I'm going to begin by breaking two cardinal rules of giving a lecture. I'm doing this for two reasons. One is this is on a podcast. And the other is, trust me, it's going to work. What I have is a few slides that are largely type. I hate that but it would be a good thing. And for the first few slides, I'm sort of going to read from them. Believe me, it gets more graphic later on. So indulge me for the first couple of minutes. Here's a very interesting quote. Scientific evidence is clearly showing that watching violence makes people more violent, and not just at the time they watch the violence, that is, not just on the schoolyard as children, but years later as adults. Many of us are already concerned about our society and our culture today, what happens when this generation grows up. You can probably guess the profession of the person who wrote that. Uh, any of you who guessed researcher, I will smack you. Uh, that's from Senator Sam Brownback, 
and it's about violent video games. Another quote. They were peddling the same old violence, the same old illiteracy, the same old passive reception of manufactured entertainment, requiring nothing more than to hand over his money and then sit there, drugged, while little effortless pictures flow over him, isolate him in a world of suspicion and fear, and leave him mentally helpless and still frustrated, floundering in imaginary blood. Any guesses what they're talking about? Yes, sir. No. <laughs> Wrong. You could be right. It could be anything. <laughs> this was Frederick Wortham. He was talking about comic books in the late 40s and 1950s. And we're going to get into some of the history of that. All right. It draws an enormous proportion of its trade from children of immature years, from a great many of mental defectives, and a vast number of illiterates. Non-English-speaking foreigners contribute great numbers to every one of those classes. After all, the way these elements receive their impression of life, of moral standards, of the obligation of citizenship, will ultimately affect in great degree the welfare of the state. Name that medium. Yeah. Uh, Joseph Levinson was head of the New York State Board of Censorship that dealt with movies. And he clearly uh, has no concept of political correctness in that type of phrasing. All right. They are corrupting the young, glamorizing criminal behavior, and are responsible for the fearful increase in youthful criminals in our cities in recent years. Dime novels. I, I could have thrown it in here and said, oh, that's video games. But actually, it was dime novels. And it was Anthony Comstock in 1886. And my favorite, children today are tyrants. They contradict their parents, gobble their foods, and tyrannize their teachers. A contemporary concern from Socrates. <laughs> so this stuff isn't new. And it's very important to keep that in perspective as we look at some of the concerns, some of the moral outrage, some of the legislation and attempted legislation dealing with all sorts of new media, including video games. So we have a, a tradition of moral panics over the introduction of new media. We're going to go over some of those. Uh, you can use the use of supposed effects of media violence as a political tool, especially when running for office or when grandstanding. There have been some marvelous examples of that. We're going to get into some historical ones. We're going to talk about some of the implications for research and look at that. Cheryl's going to be dealing with the number crunching part of this. And we're also going to share some of our study's results and how we interpret that and where we'd like to see some additional research. Now, what I'd like you to do for a moment is imagine a time in which Congress people are caught, up, caught taking bribes from lobbyists, the vice president of the U.S. is tied to a giant construction company, and there's a need to distract the public because there are elections coming up. Now, you guys are really smart, right? I mean, you immediately know that I'm talking about the Credit Mobilier scandal of 1873. Because that could never happen again. Enter Anthony Comstock, the guy whose quote was on there before. He was a media darling of the late 19th and early 20th century. And what he did was he accompanied a reporter on a police raid of what were then called French postcards. They were pictures of naked women sold at a pharmacy. And these were confiscated. And he was quoted in the paper from that. So, of course, he started gathering more and more of this pornographic material, as he called it. And he collected a bunch of it, and he went down to Washington, D.C. to visit Congress and 
talk about this horrible situation. And they said, you know, with this credit mobilier issue, this is a great issue. And so they appointed him a U.S. postal inspector, which gave him police powers. And he went on later to arrest, I think it was thousands of people, and burn tons and tons of books. Uh, you may have heard of the Comstock Act, which prevented the interstate uh, delivery of material on birth control. Um, and uh, that essentially prevented the post office from carrying that. So what was going on at this time? Culturally, in the 19th century, there were <clears throat> masses of young people who were going to the seas to look for jobs. This happened in England. This happened in the U.S. In England, uh, there were concerns, especially about the social influence of cheap live theater. These were the penny gaffes. And also this cheap escapist fiction, because finally printing was cheap. You had powered printing presses. More people learned how to read. And so you could have cheap publications. And where you go when you have cheap publications? Stuff that is escapist. Now, they were called Penny Dreadfuls in England, half-dime or dime novels in the U.S. They had characters like Tyburn Dick, the boy king of the highwaymen, and Elmira, the female pirate. And these were of great concerns. This is a typical dime novel. <coughs> and you can actually see the fake dimes on top there. But what's very interesting, initially these covers had only a dime and a title. Then they started illustrating them with woodcuts and eventually with color thing. But what was shocking at the time, these are women. And my God, these are women acting independently. And this was terrifying. And so there was a great concern among one of the genders uh, as to what this might mean. And so this would destroy the values of youth, especially teenage girls. Lord knows boy, what they might do. Now, not all novelists, and not all novels were bad. Some of you may have heard of Horatio Alger. Uh, he was a highly prolific novelist. He wrote approximately 200 novels. He did it the easy way. They all have pretty much the same plot. And what, it, what they all involve is <coughs> excuse me, a young boy, down on his luck, poor, who does something nice to an older gentleman who takes him under his wing, shows him the ways of the world, and he proceeds to be successful as an adult, to bring himself up from his bootstraps. Uh, how many of you heard of the phrase, a Horatio Alger story? Yeah, that's what we talk about. Well, these books promoted the upstanding values of the Victorian era, and people were proud to have them on their bookshelves, and why not? I mean, Horatio Alger was a Harvard graduate. He was a Unitarian minister out here in Brewster. It was the ideal person to teach our children the right ways, to give them moral behavioral guidance in this wayward generation of youth. There was only one problem. You see, uh, Horatio Alger had to leave, well, he chose to leave his ministry uh, before they could catch him after he was accused of sexually abusing two young boys. Um, and they admitted to it. His father was also a Unitarian minister, cut a deal with the church. They wouldn't go after him if uh, he promised never to grab another pulpit. And he moved to New York and became a full-time writer. He also, quote, adopted uh, three teenage boys. Uh, we don't know the extent of his sexual predation for the rest of his life because when he died, his sister at his request and his will burned all of his papers. 
there is an organization, those of you who are John Stewart fans will hear him uh, allude to it occasionally, NAMBLA, the National, uh, Associate, the National Man-Boy Love Association, which is a group of pederasts, and the New York City chapter of NAMBLA is the Horatio Alger chapter. So be careful of uh, the people who say, yeah, we have the right type of media for you. <coughs> okay, 1930s. Public policymakers panicked over films like Little Caesar and Public Enemy and Scarface, things that we now call uh, classics. And what they did is set up local censorship boards, some of them in cities, some of them for states. And different versions of films would go uh, around the country according to what met what criteria. This was, of course, driving the industry nuts. Not only that, but in 1933, there was a best-selling book, Our Movie Made Children, that talked about all those horrible things that were in films and how they would affect kids and how watching a gangster film, especially because gangster films were really starting to become popular, that taught criminals how to behave and led the wayward youth. This book is still available in local libraries, by the way. I grabbed a copy a few months ago, and it's, it's fascinating. Uh, the descriptions of these uh, teenagers who were incarcerated saying, yeah, I learned from the movies and I, I stole a quarter and you know, went to do the... It, it's totally ridiculous. They're clearly playing him. And then so they came up with the Hayes Code, and the Hayes Code was an attempt at self-regulation. Now, we'll see this recapitulated throughout different media. The industry came in and said, you know, we can't have different rules in different states and different cities. We're going to do it ourselves, and you guys should trust us. One of the things that uh, they banned, by the way, was the dynamiting of trains out of fear that teenage boys would blow trains up all over the country. Uh, interesting, they were not concerned that teenage girls were. They were concerned that teenage boys would. Let's do, move to the next moral panic, which was comics. Uh, I love the graphics on these. I, I think they're wonderful. And... One of the common themes in the 1940s and early 1950s, if you look at these, was someone rising from the dead. You see that Cooper dies in electric care, convicted killer swears revenge on Judge Hawley as Switch is thrown. Put this in some sort of historical and cultural context. Many of the people who were executives, who were artists, who were writers, for the comic book industry were European Jews who came over to this country. And so this whole issue right after World War II of rising up from the dead and seeking revenge upon those who had killed you had a special resonance for them. It's, I don't think it's at all coincidental that that's much of what was going on. Huge business, 75 million dime comics bought and traded each month. And then a psychoanalyst who was actually a pretty good guy. He was doing very socially progressive things most of the time, but he got on this kick about the terrible things in comic books. Dr. Frederick Wortham, he wrote The Seduction of the Innocent, another bestseller. And he presented a feast of anecdotal evidence, evidence about uh, child crimes triggered by reading comics, uh, as well as concerns about the sexual relationship between Batman and Robin. The uh, book became a bestseller. Again, it is still available in local libraries. It's fascinating. And, of course, you see this spread in other media. Uh, great titles of magazine articles here. Horror in the Nursery. You don't have to read the rest of the article. You know exactly what it is. What parents don't know about comic books. Comics were the enemy. And as they put it, it was nestled in the bosom of the American family. 
And this led to bans in cities, at least 50 cities tried to prevent or regulate the sale of comics. Again, this should feel familiar. Uh, New York State Legislature passed a bill making it a crime to sell comics that might incent minors to violence or immorality. The governor vetoed it of concern that it might be unconstitutional. And the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency held hearings about the pernicious effects of comic books. And one of the people testi uh, testifying was Dr. Wortham. And what he said was, if it were my, oh, I should point one wonderful thing out. I love this quote. We have long sought queen. You shall reign as queen of the lizard men. <laughs> it's just great. So, you, you want to be queen of the lizard men? Is I hearing that? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, why not? <clears throat> and what Wortham said, and you know, this, this <clears throat> gives you a sense of the tenor of the times. He said, if it were my task, Mr. Chairman, to teach children delinquency, to tell them how to rape and seduce girls, how to hurt people, how to break into stores, how to cheat, how to forge, how to do any known crime, if it were my task to do that, I would have to enlist the crime comic book industry. Now, of course, many of those are collector's items. Uh, a few years ago, Michael Chabon was a Pulitzer Prize for his absolutely wonderful novel, uh, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which is about this period, the golden age of comic books. And these are considered classics, just as uh, the gangster films of the 30s are considered classics as well. But that wasn't how it was perceived, especially in the popular press and by politicians and pundits. You have quotes about teens living, quote, almost entirely in a juvenile underground, largely out of touch with the demands of social responsibility, culture, and personal refinement. Uh, you could hear that on Fox News today about video games, uh, probably with that graphic in the background, too. So what happens? Same thing that happened in the movie, self-regulating comics code. And that unfortunately led to the demise of the golden age of comics. Let's talk a bit about uh, television violence. Uh, 1972 Surgeon General's report, the authors pondered how television content and programming practices could be changed to reduce the risk of increasing aggression without causing other harms. And they concluded that, quote, the state of present knowledge does not permit an agreed answer. It basically was too complex. They couldn't figure it out. They had some hints. They had actually some very interesting hints. Uh, those of you who are old enough may remember in the 1990s there were deep concerns about Power Rangers and Mutant Ninja Turtles and kids imitating uh, those behaviors on the schoolyard. Um, these are not unlike the concerns about kids imitating what they saw in gangster movies decades earlier. But what happened is we started getting a leap from television into a more interactive medium. We have the initial concerns from the 90s of the arcade games. Uh, really pay attention to the graphics of that. Uh, it's, uh, yes, it is very bloody. It's very unrealistic. You have a body basically torn in half with blood spurting out of it. Uh, but it's highly pixelated. I mean, you don't have great detail there. It's almost an abstract compared to what we have now. But the graphic depictions, that is the presence of blood by itself, was something of tremendous concern. And parents worried about the bad environmental influences of the video arcades. You weren't playing this at home initially. You were playing it aside, you know, right next to Pac-Man at the arcade. And this is just that their great-great-grandparents had worried about the penny gaffs in London, the influence of the environment 
we got trouble, my friends, right here in River City. Now, the shift in technology brought about much more realism. Again, you compare that to the, what we had before in terms of graphic realism. It's still stylized, but you see details of bruises as opposed to big blobs of blood shooting out. But also the audio changed. Audio is undervalued in these games. It's tremendously important in terms of realism. Also, the popularity among preteens and teens of violent content in games. <coughs> it seems that and Cheryl will get into this, that it may not be the violence itself that was attracting teenagers, but rather the nuances of character and nuances of plot and the complexity of the plot. But as the games that had a plot more sophisticated than Pac-Man often involve violence. It's an easy thing to write for. That's why a lot of cheap films, when in doubt, have a car chase, have a shooting. Now, we have... Uh, these you know, newer issues, you know, the sexualized content, modeling of antisocial behavior, the parental control. This whole bad influence thing is fascinating. It's really a locus of control issue. Parents feel lost. They feel left back. They feel that this isn't what they did. They, get it. they grew up. Now, the concern might be rock and roll. It might be television. It might be films. It's a generational thing. You do not believe it yet, but when you have kids who are teenagers you will find yourself thinking the same thing. The other big concern is satire. The Theft Auto series of games is replete with satire. I mean, that's the basis of the game. And if you're 16 or 17 or 18, yeah, you get it. Well, what if you're 11? You very well may not. Your brain is not quite wired for that. And the neuroscience people can give you details. And so, the fact that you may interpret the same information quite differently is another issue of concern. There also appear to be some pundits and politicians who just as well do not understand that it's satire. <laughs> but that may be because they've only seen clips, they have not actually seen the game. So, in musical terms, is this a recapitulation? That is, uh, are these the same fears we had with dime novels and gangsters? You know, it's life being... Uh, developed in sonata form here with the theme exposition, development, recapitulation. Um, is any of this changing? Well, that's why we think that you really do need the historical perspective on all of this. Some of our concerns may be justified. Others, when read about by our grandchildren who are doing their doctoral dissertations on the early classic video games that have not yet been developed, um, may look at this and say, gee, that's kind of quaint. What I'd like to do is go on some of the research. I'm going to leave that to Cheryl for a while. Go for it. Oh, boy. <laughs> okay. So most of the media violence research that's out there still today is based on television. So I'll start with a little bit of television violence research. Interestingly, in recent years, there's been a little more nuance there. With video games, you often, you often hear parents say, I'm not allowing one of those consoles in my house. You know, you don't, you don't hear that so often about uh, televisions, and, and you don't hear it anymore about books, interestingly. But uh, in the 1990s, there was a big study called the National Television Violence Study that had about 300 researchers all over the country. And they looked, first, what's the landscape out there? And then they said two-thirds of programs contain violence. And they included things like Roadrunner cartoon violence and that, six violent acts per hour and so on. But one of the things that was interesting is that 
They said it's not the violence per se, it's the way that the violence is portrayed that might increase the risk for children to imitate it. So it depends on the context of the violence. And what do they mean by that? Well, if the perpetrator is attractive, I have a picture here of, uh, of Law & Order, I always want to say uh, SVU, S or, or, or SUV, I'll say, I want to say the vehicle and not the other one, okay. <laughs> but you know which one I mean. Uh, Produced by a pediatrician, by the way. That's why I get confused. Uh, so the perpetrator is attractive, the violence is seen as justified, so that could be detector, that could be James Bond. Uh, the violence is realistic, using a real-life weapon, a real gun, maybe a toilet or a fist, uh, as opposed to a you know, ray gun or something. Uh, if the violence is rewarded, or at least it's not punished, and if the violence is seen as being funny. Uh, these researchers in the 90s found about 40% of the violent scenes contained humor. Uh, and half of the violent incidents on TV didn't show any pain or physical harm, well, especially the cartoon violence. Here's a picture of Wally Coyote. But the really interesting thing was that, um, uh, you know, we don't see that kind of nuance with the, video, with the video games. We don't see them talking about the, the type of violence. We see them talking about the blood. Uh, but one of the things that we also wanted to talk about, Larry, where did you find this, Larry? This is the, the evil Muppets. It's apparently when Muppets go bad in the <laughs> Netherlands. <Yeah. laughs> They've all got these kind of weapons and, and big eyebrows. It's wonderful. Uh, there aren't any longitudinal studies really on video game violence yet. There's maybe one that has a year-long kind of thing. But if you, if you look in the research in this area, they'll say, oh, yeah, longitudinal studies have shown that kids who uh, watch more TV violence, uh, 10 years later, they were more involved in crime and so on. Uh, if you actually look at what happened with some of these things, uh, this, this study by Johnson followed children for 17 years and found that watching three or more hours per day of TV was associated with more fights, robbery, aggressive acts, and so on in adulthood. But let's take a closer look at this. He, he only measured the quantity of TV, TV watched on the assumption that TV has a lot of violence. So the more TV you watch, the more violence, right? And that's actually what happens with most video game violence research today. It's regardless of the content. And also, uh, the results were different at different ages as they measured these kids. And they found if, uh, I think if they threw just a few people out of the sample, the results would have been non-significant. So uh, it was pretty, pretty um, interesting. We don't know if these people would have turned out differently if they had not watched TV. Another one you hear about, uh, there's a guy named Raoul Huseman, who's still publishing. He's um, kind of the revered senior people in media violence research. I think it's a little bit off, but uh, he started a study in the 70s and concluded that childhood viewing of TV predicts adult aggressive behavior. Uh, they didn't measure what was watched either. They asked grade school kids to choose their favorite shows from some lists and to see how often they watch those, like, you know, every time it's on, once in a while. And what's interesting is the change in standards. The, some of the very violent shows that they listed in the publications were Starsky and Hutch, Million Dollar Man, and Roadrunner. That was those were in the very violent category, uh, which <laughs> it shows you with, I mean, in fairness to these guys, it's hard to do a longitudinal study because standards change, technology changes, and it's only much more difficult now with video games than it was with television. So uh, let's look at what's out there so far in the last 10 or 20 years on video game violence, first of all. Uh, in 2007, video game, violence, video game software and equipment, not counting PC, uh, the sales totaled 18 billion. This is up from about 10 and a half billion in 2005. It's just a huge increase in this. So it's it's obviously a 
a, a big business. Uh, it's bigger than movie ticket sales now, in fact, in this country. And uh, there was a, the, the Kaiser Family Foundation, a, a good organization, does a lot of research in this area. They did a, a national survey in 2005 and found on a typical day, about half of kids, 8 to 18, are playing video games. On about a third are playing computer games. You know, they split them off in two. And uh, one of the, you probably you probably uh, have heard some of these links between school shooting and uh, video game things. It comes up over and over. So let's look at this sort of the scariest charges leveled here against video games. First, they can turn kids into killers, supposedly. Uh, this was the the DC sniper from what was that about five years ago now. Um, the, the claim by one of his lawyers was that he was trained to desensitize with video games and computer games to, sh- to shoot human forms over and over. Uh, what they found actually later on was that he had trained with an actual gun using paper plates to present human heads. And that uh, he, he had a scope and a, and a stable thing and people who weren't moving who he was trying to shoot. So it really wasn't as hard as it sounds. Uh, so he said, this, the lawyer said he trained on Halo. Now, if you look at Halo... It's kind of a big alien bug kind of deal, or I mean, it's not really very realistic. Uh, and interestingly, uh, a journalist named David Kushner made a, a, a very sensible point, saying there's no way any reasonable person could suggest that shooting a gun in Halo against a giant alien bug would enable you to pick up a real gun and shoot a real person. And, you know, just, and, and what about all the millions of people who played it and did not shoot people? Uh, so, uh, oh, and also this came up again in, in, with Columbine. Even Re- Anderson Dill, our researchers, uh, Craig Anderson is one of the most published researchers in video games. Uh, and even he, in his academic papers, was starting out with things about, you know, one possible contributing factor at Columbine was the violent video games. Harrison Klebold enjoyed playing the bloody shoot 'em up video game Doom. Uh, what's interesting is uh, Karen Dill, the second researcher in Grand Theft Auto IV, named a car after her, the Karen Dilettante. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but then uh, Gerard Jones, who you might have seen his book called Killing Monsters, Why Children Need Fantasy, Superheroes, and Make-Believe. He said, well, these games have been played by millions of people, and only two of them did that. I'd say the problem was with those two people and not the video games. And he wasn't the only one saying that. In fact, the FBI and the Secret Service tried to find a profile of a school shooter, and they found that there wasn't a profile other than being male and having some kind of history of depression, whether treated or untreated. That was pretty much all they could find. Uh, they found that only about one in eight killers over the last uh, 25 years had shown any interest in violent video games. The, the main media violence that they were interested in was their own writings in you know, papers and, and journals. Um, so and it's, it's what's interesting. It's I'll tell, I tell people on, on the web and in presentations like this that the, the, the FBI and Secret Service have knocked this down, and they're always surprised. For some reason, this doesn't get out, but the myth of the school shooter and the video games gets, gets repeated you know, Jack Thompson was out there after uh, Virginia Tech with that myth. Restaurant. Desk restaurant. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we should, you should say that. Oh, it, it's a nice peg to hang the image on of a school shooter. There have been very few school shootings that were not gang-related or drug-related. Uh, I think we have the numbers there. It's like 27 uh, over the past 35 years. I mean, it's a very small number. And school violence has gone down. Uh, the place where you're more likely to find a shooting from a stranger of stranger is fast food restaurants. Uh, but you don't hear about the fast food restaurant shootings. Yeah, so it's fascinating how people have chosen to frame this. And because it's in the media over and over, there's a perception that, that school shootings have increased, and they have not. I mean, obviously, the, the terrible toll at Virginia Tech was an anomaly. Uh, but 
the number of incidents has not really increased. It's just the attention and then the fact that they've been framed as a problem. Uh, youth violence is not increasing. In fact, according to the FBI, youth violence peaked in 1994. Arrests for violent crime before to 2004, the latest data that we have. So down, you know, by half. Property crime arrests down 47 percent since 2003. Uh, there are some minor things that are up. Arrests for simple assault, which is defined as you, you go after someone without a, without a weapon and you don't hurt them badly. There's a whole legal thing to that. Although there's some thought that this increase in simple assault arrests, I was told by the head of the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, may be a change in the way that the law is written in an attempt to um, prevent domestic violence. If a cop goes to a home and, say, a mother and daughter are having a a drug out fight, and the cop needs to arrest someone because there's a mandated arrest. He's going to arrest the daughter instead of the mother, especially if there are little kids there that the mother has to care for. And so generally speaking, that, that kind of change in the law could inadvertently increase these statistics. So it's really hard to know whether assault is up or not. You always have to take a look behind any statistics you see in any of these areas, including our, our own research, that which we'll describe in a little bit. Uh, so, but in addition to the simple assault concern, we do find that a lot of kids are afraid to go to school. There's still a lot of bullying concerns. Uh, the Youth Risk Behavior Survey, which they do every year, the latest data, they found 5.5% uh, of high school kids felt, said that they had felt too unsafe to go to school at least once in the last 30 days. They thought they'd be in danger at school or on the way to or from school. And uh, other studies show similar trends to this. 7.8% uh, of them said they'd been threatened or injured with a weapon on school property in the last year. And in 2005, this was, this was from, from a, a different study that I think is an, uh, an education statistics one, 28% uh, of students aged 12 to 18 said they've been bullied at school in the last six months. Now, this, this is, it's hard to tell if this is going up because they changed the way they asked the question. They used to just ask about, have you been bullied? And now they ask about, has someone you know, insulted your, you know, racially or sexually? Have they verbally abused you? Have they hit you. So that tends to make it look a little bit higher. But internationally now, there's a much bigger concern about bullying as a serious problem in terms of mental health, physical harm. About a quarter of these kids who said they've been bullied said they've been physically hurt. Uh, and it, you know, it's not just like a cute childhood thing anymore. It's a, it's a serious public health problem. And so it's, you know, could video games be contributing to something like that? Uh, also, uh, it's possible that games could be desensitizing people to aggressive behavior. That's one concern that kids even have expressed to me. Uh, and then there's the issue of modeling behavior. This is from bully with their, you know, the, the head toilet kind of thing. I think a lot of people already know about toilets without seeing video games. But uh, so, <laughs> so let's uh, just take now just quickly switch to what there is out there about video games. And there are a lot of problems out there, uh, unfortunately, with the research that there is. One reason w that we took on the research we did was because uh, Larry and I are married. We have a, a son who's a freshman now to Oberlin College. And so when we started this research, he was around uh, 14 years old, and he played video games. And we, we looked at the data that were out there and said, you know, this doesn't miss anything to go on. We, we can't tell from these experiments with college students with the, these little air horn blasts for a fraction of a second if that means that our child should or should not play. We don't know what's normal. We don't know how many kids are playing what kinds of games. So uh, among the many limitations of what's been out there is fuzzy definitions of aggression and violence. You have some people who will um, measure children playing around roughhousing on the playground and say that that play aggression, which is not intended to hurt anybody, counts as violence. You have some researchers who, who actually have written that 
the kind of aggression you see in the lab where someone's giving a mild electric shock, for example, has the same intent to harm as someone who has a gun and is holding up a, a cashier in a 7-Eleven. I, I, I just cannot believe that they would say something like that. But this is not uncommon. Uh, so you always have to look in this sort of research, what did they mean by aggression? How did they measure it? Um, there's also the artificial situations, uh, you know, college freshmen getting a few extra dollars or a little extra credit. Uh, they, they play a game for 15 or 20 minutes, you know, violent or nonviolent, and then they see is there a little increase in some kind of behavior or, or on a questionnaire. Now, this is nothing like the way real people are playing games in the real world. Uh, they often are vague about the, the games that they use, the study methods, the outcomes. I mean, there's all, you know, these very basic things about research that would make it possible to tell whether there are problems to, to replicate it. It's just often left out. I, the journal editors just seem to lose all of their, their, uh, you know, their skepticism when they, they get an article on media violence. Uh, you get very out-of-date things. You'll have people quoting things from 1987. And I think things have changed a little bit since 1987, I think, in video games. There's a lot of confusion of cause and effect, correlation and causation, uh, which is, in my opinion, disgraceful. Uh, there's also, if in, the, in the things that are outside of the lab that look at real-world people, uh, a lot of convenience samples, small sizes. You know, you get 20 kids. Uh, you get these, these odd measures, you know, like these uh, fraction of a second longer air blast at an imaginary opponent after playing a game. It's just kind of crazy. Uh, and then there's the issue of practical significance versus statistical significance. You can make something be statistically significant, and that's what the journal editor may want, but if it's something that's a fraction of a second different on a questionable measure, you know, that's, you know, that's not useful for policy, yet that is the kind of thing that has been cited to make policy. Uh, there's also statistical juggling that's been done. Um, uh, Brad Bushman and Craig Anderson did a 2001 article in American Psychologist, an otherwise good journal, comparing the correlation coefficients from two meta-analyses, one that looked at the effects of smoking on lung cancer and one on the effect of violent media exposure on aggression. They said, oh, look, the, the, uh, you know, the uh, effect sizes are basically the same between smoking and lung cancer and media violence and real-world violence. I, I, you know, it's, it's just kind of mind-boggling. Uh, they overlook other explanations for this. And with, um, and with smoking and cancer, when we smoke cancer... Lung cancer was relatively rare before we had smoking. There's a clear causal agent. You know, we measure it pretty much the same way. There's so many things that make that a ridiculous comparison. Uh, and uh, another thing is, well, the Surgeon General's report on youth violence in 2001 noted that observational learning from media could promote maybe antisocial and prosocial behavior, but uh, you know, the sum of the findings from all these cross-sectional experimental and longitudinal studies suggests that media violence has a relatively small impact on violence and the impact of violent games, of video games on violent behavior remains to be determined. I wish they wouldn't talk about impact of violence. Uh, you can actually get a, an article, by the way, about the impact of television on children, emergency room visits uh, for children who had TVs fall on them. And <laughs> so I think of that whenever I hear about the impact of violence on children. Uh, <laughs> The other, the, I mean, the final problem with this is, is that a lot of researchers will assume that reducing all media use is a good outcome. They'll say, okay, we got them to watch X fewer hours of TV or cut down their video game use. And there's a lot of research coming out on TV in particular that pro-social educational TV has a lot of benefits for kids. Um, there hasn't been much attention paid to potential positive uh, things about video games. When you look for bad things, you tend to find bad things. A uh, few people, like uh, Green and Bevelier at University of Rochester, they published a piece in Nature in 2003 that found playing a fast-paced game uh, over time could improve selective attention and monitoring of multiple tasks. It was 
a really fasc fascinating uh, thing. They were concerned about could video games be used in rehab situations, and they got creamed because they used it happened to use a violent game because it was a faster paced game. Uh, it, it wasn't about the violence. Uh, and I mean, we, I interviewed uh, Daphne Bavelier for the book, and she was really gun shy. We had to like, coax her out like a timid deer to get her to talk to us because she'd been so maligned by the press. And she's just trying to help you know, rehabilitate uh, damaged people and elderly people. Uh, another thought is that video games might help kids deal with stress and aggressive feelings, kind of a catharsis idea. That is not fully supported yet. We did look at that a little bit with our own research, and we're working with another uh, researcher down in Texas who's uh, crunching the data again, looking, looking for some evidence of this. Also, there have been a few studies on kids with ADD, ADHD, suggesting that there may be benefits for them in terms of learning. Uh, and certainly, uh, you know, kids with ADD or learning disabilities might help them build social connections. We did find that. I'll get into that in a little bit. <clears throat> so what did our lab do? Uh, I have a, we have a, a cartoon up here for those of you listening on the podcast. It's I had in mind a nice heat chip to be implanted directly into children. <laughs> so what we did was set out to, to look at First, what's normal and what's not? Because if you don't know what's normal or what's not, you can't, you can't really say what we should be concerned about. We wanted to spot patterns of abnormal behavior so we could say, okay, parent, uh, pediatrician, teacher, you know, this child's behavior is not normal. We should keep a closer eye on that child. Whether we can prove there's a problem or not, it's just a, higher, uh, a pattern of higher risk. And that particular child may be fine, but you should at least know this is normal, this is less normal. So, and we, we really worked hard on trying to measure exposure to, to, to different types of game content. We didn't want to make the mistake of a lot of the TV violence researchers. So what we ended up doing is asking kids in this survey that we gave during school to list five games they'd played a lot in the last six months. And uh, we had, a, we had uh, 1,254 kids. Uh, the vast majority of them listed at least one title, most listed five. Uh, we found that virtually all kids, these seventh and eighth grade kids in South Carolina and Pennsylvania, uh, virtually all of them were playing video or computer games. Only 17 out of 1,254 kids had never played a video or computer game. Most of them were starting in you know, second or third grade, probably much earlier now. Uh, and we boiled this list of games down to about 500 commercially available rated game titles or game series. They, they listed you know, hundreds and hundreds. Uh, over half of those were listed by only one child. It was a really diverse group. About uh, 119 games were listed by five or more kids. Uh, so what was the most popular? Now we're talking to tip most of these kids are about 13 years old. We found that among boys, Grand Theft Auto, that series was far and away the most popular game series. And they're not supposed to be able to buy this uh, until they're 17, remember, and I'll, I'll get into that later. Uh, but um, we found that about, about two-thirds of boys had played... Um, at least one violent game, M-rated game, a lot in the last six months, and 44% had played at least one game of Grand Theft Auto series a lot. Uh, this, came, this research was done about two months after uh, San Andreas came out. Uh, the second most popular was Madden Football, which is rated E, and then Halo, which is M. The rest of the top ten, I think they were pretty much all nonviolent Mario, Lord of the Rings, you know, mostly sports games, Tony Hawk, things of that nature. So by no means were they all violent games. With girls, what was very interesting, The Sims was the number one series among 13-year-old girls, which is you know, not too surprising. But what we didn't expect at all was that Grand Theft Auto was number two among girls. 
Uh, and we just we were really thrown by that. We we did focus groups with boys, and we assumed that we shouldn't bother with girls. I mean, we have limited budget; we can only do so much. But we thought there wouldn't be that many girls playing the violent games, and there are about I think about uh, it was about um, twenty about twenty percent. One in five girls was playing a Grand Theft Auto game a lot, uh, and that really that really knocked us out. We hope eventually to get some funding for uh, focus groups with girls to find out what's going on there and if they're playing it for the same reason as boys are. Uh, and the rest of the girls' games, you know, it was Super Mario, Solitaire, uh, Tycoon games, and some most of games, Dance Dance Revolution, and so on. Uh, we found that boys and girls are very different in the typical amount of time they spend on games. If you've got a, a little brother, you probably noticed this. Uh, the, it's really common. About a third of boys are playing almost every day. That's, so that's not unusual for boys. For girls, it's much less common. Only about one in ten girls plays almost every day. Uh, and... Uh, Almost half of boys, 42%, are playing six or more hours a week, and only 12% of girls. So it's a, it's a you know, really skewed kind of thing. And a lot of kids are playing only on weekends. About um, 38% of the boys, 40, 44% of the girls said they typically play games only on the weekends. Uh, we also want to know who kids are playing games with. I mean, in the lab, a lot of this is done in isolation. But in the real world, of course, you usually see kids playing in a group, especially boys. We found, interestingly, that very few kids play with a parent. Uh, we gave them a, a five-point scale of, I play with you know, this person, you know, never, often, always, and so on. And just 5% of boys and 6% of girls said they played often or always with a parent. Uh, a lot of kids in focus group told us they wish they could play with their parents more. Uh, we found that uh, quite a few kids are playing with people they don't know over the Internet. Uh, parents may or may not panic over that. I don't think that they should panic over it, but even kids in poorer areas are, are playing uh, over the Internet on consoles. Uh, we also found that with boys, a lot more of them are playing with friends than girls. It's very common for boys to play with one or more friends in the same room and more common over the Internet as well. One of the things we asked, too, is why kids play video games. Almost nobody, amazingly enough, has done studies that, that were published studies that ask kids why they play. We found that the motivations are very complex. We came up with about 17 different reasons why they might play and asked them on a four-point scale, you know, I play video games because, and then each reason was, you know, strongly disagree, disagree, agree, strongly agree, to see what their motivations might be. Uh, and we found that I mean, the top reasons were really kind of duh. It's just fun. It's exciting. It's something to do when I'm bored. Uh, also things like I like, to, I like the challenge of figuring out the game. And for boys especially, I like to compete with people and win. Uh, over half of the kids agreed with some kind of creative reasons for play. They like to create their own world. They like to learn new things. You know, and that's, I think, something that if you know kids who play video games, you see that quite a bit. We also did something uh, called effector analysis, where we tried to look at clusters of reasons for play among the kids and found the kids kind of came out in roughly four categories that dominated the reasons that they played. Uh, there was the kind of excitement and challenge and fun competition group. And then there was the group that played mostly because their friends played, maybe to make new friends. There were kids who mostly played when there was nothing else to do. And then there was a fourth group that was very interesting that played mostly apparently to manage their emotions. Um, we found that about two-thirds of boys uh, said that they played games to, to, get, to relieve stress. And about a quarter of kids were playing games um, for emotional regulation to forget problems, to get their anger out, to feel less lonely. Uh, it was a very common reason. Um, uh, among boys, two-thirds said they play to help them relax, half to get their problems, almost half to get their anger out. 
And about, uh, uh, about one in five kids met this cutoff for the emotional management with games profile, which was very interesting. And the kids who used games to regulate their emotions as a primary thing, they were more likely to play um, over 15 hours a week, to play every day, and to often or always to play alone. So that has interesting implications for a depression, for example. Uh, we're hoping to explore this more later in qualitative studies to see when it might be good and when it might be bad to play games for emotional regulation. Uh, now, the issue of, of how to define violence came up earlier, and we chose as a rough measure of exposure to violence to look at M-rated games, which are supposed to be mature, age 17 plus, uh, because that's what a lot of the policymakers have been concerned about. Either they've said we want to restrict kids' access to games rated mature or to ultra-violent games, variously defined, or games where you kill police or other things that are very hard to, to defend. But we thought, since we were concerned about parents and policy, this is what we would use. But the ratings don't tell us anything about the goals and the context of the violence, those things that are so important in the TV violence. I'll get to that a little, in, a little bit later. Uh, we found that uh, violent games are popular. About two-thirds of boys and almost 30% of girls were playing at least one M-rated game a lot in the last six months. About 10% on the list of five game titles, were, those were mostly M-rated games. And there was no real pattern by age. The 12-year-olds were just about as likely as the 14-year-olds to be playing an M-rated game a lot. And we found that the kids who played M-rated games were more uh, playing for more hours uh, uh, a day, more days per, per, per week. Uh, they were more likely to have a console or computer in their bedroom, and they were more likely to play with multiple friends or with older siblings, which is, shouldn't be a surprise. Uh, and the kids who played violent games, there were reasons for play. They were significantly more likely to say they played to compete and win, uh, to get their anger out, uh, they, or that they liked to mod games. And the fourth thing was that they, they agreed with a reason, I like the guns and other weapons, which in retrospect was a bad wording choice on my part. We sh I think it reflects the kids like explosions and, and things. And a lot of kids also were in hunting territory where we surveyed, and they were familiar with guns as a hunting tool. So it... It, I really don't know what to make of those uh, data. So the big question, are games linked to aggression and violence? We found that kids who played at least one M-rated game a lot, they were more likely to be uh, getting into fights, uh, damaging property for fun, uh, getting in trouble with teachers, you know, uh, two or three times more likely for boys in most of these, three or four times more likely for girls. But these were common childhood behaviors that we were looking at. We weren't looking at school shootings, we were looking at you know, fights, which kids, most kids get into a fight, you know, at least once in every couple of years. And we have no way of knowing whether this is just that more aggressive kids are drawn to violent games disproportionately. You know, we we cannot, actually cannot say that the games are making them do this. But for girls in particular, because it's a higher risk, if you have a girl who plays uh, mostly violent games, plays a lot, that's just unusual, and you should keep a closer eye on those kids. It doesn't mean it causes it. Uh, and uh, this is just what I already just said this. Uh, we also did focus groups with boys from the, the greater Boston area, kids from, you know, from middle class areas, poor areas, and asked them about why they played games. And the main reasons they played, they were, they were interested in, in fantasies of power and fame and respect, uh, doing things they couldn't do in real life. One boy said, if I could be powerful, like I think it was a character in Mortal Kombat, uh, when someone's getting bullied and I can't defend themselves, I'd go help them out. Uh, but the boys were also very aware that uh, game actions would have, very, have different consequences in the real world. Uh, we asked some kids, you know, what would you do if you woke up tomorrow as your favorite game character? And one said, uh, well, I don't know, because if I took out the sword in public, I'd get arrested. <laughs> 
Uh, and Boyce also talked about using violent games to deal with stress, like uh, once that his parents had gotten divorced and they were fighting, he would go and play a violent game uh, or the, to get their anger out. Uh, you know, the teacher yelled at me because I forgot my homework, and so I went home and uh, got a cheat code in a tank and ran over everybody, and then I felt better. Uh, and that's probably okay. You know, in moderation, it's probably a healthy thing to do. Uh, the appeal of uh, violence in games in particular... Kids liked action and games that you could play more than once, and a lot of those happen to be violent games. They tend to have more realistic environments, uh, more realistic emotions. Kids also like to to test behaviors. Suppose I'm a bad guy in this game, and I do this awful stuff. What will happen? Uh, I know there are some games now, like like Fable, where if you're a a bad guy, it changes the way you look, how people react to you. And in the newest Grand Theft Auto game, your behavior has an effect on the plot line and how people act toward you. And kids really find that interesting. They said they wanted to try things out, you know, see, hopefully it would never happen to them, see what that was like. You're really distinguishing the game world from the real world. Uh, and, you know, Grand Theft Auto is, has a ton of these features, along with the satire, which kids like, of course. Uh, so it's not surprising that that's a game series that, that uh, kids this age really like. Um, we did focus groups with parents. I'll just wrap this up quickly. Uh, the parents... <laughs> We're not concerned about blood per se, and that's what the ratings are covering. If you look at the game boxes, they have content descriptors, and they'll say, you know, intense violence, blood, things like that, comic mischief. And the parents said, you know, I don't care so much about the, the blood. I care about the context. I don't want a... Uh, one kid said, my mom doesn't like the, the beat people up and go higher games, you know, where you have to be violent to win. They didn't like games where you were targeting women and minorities disproportionately. Uh, they said, I don't mind uh, shooting trolls. If it's realistic people, that's different. It's one thing shooting. It's something else decapitating, lighting on fire. <laughs> Someone wanted to know, you know, do you have to commit a crime to win? Let's be le- you know, use legal terms, what I was saying. Uh, and none of that is... is uh, something the parents can find out now uh, through the ratings or even if they go to the website of the Entertainment Software Rating Board. So that's an area that needs a lot more attention. Um, and one of, one of the things that uh, parents all, and I think it's different in some other countries, but in this country, no nudity, no sex, no know-how, end of story. They were all flatly against anything to do with sexuality. And what was so interesting is that well, when we talked to boys, what should you not play at your age, you know, 13-year-olds? Uh, pretty much all said, well, you know, the violent games were fine as long as you were over 12, <laughs> since they were 13. But they, they were in a couple of focus groups, they said there were some games they thought they should not play. And he said, well, okay, what was that? Um, yeah, Larry, you, Larry does this so well. I wanted to, to... Yeah. Oops. You have to keep in mind that we did two different sets of studies. One was the large 1,254 people. This is a massive survey. We also did these focus groups, and for many of them, we had the kids in one room and their parents in the other room, you know, different researchers asking different questions, and the parents were saying, no, my kid doesn't play that, and kids saying, yeah, of course, I play that all the time. Um, You know, kids are smart, and when we asked them, how old should you be in order to play an M-rated game, they gave a fairly obvious answer, the one we predicted, which was either their current age or a year younger. We said, well, wait a second. What if you have an eight-year-old brother or sister? Would you let them play these uh, games? No, 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 no. Why not? And they give exactly the same reasons that their parents give in the next room about why they shouldn't play it. They don't understand the difference between fantasy and reality. may act impulsively. But what they were really concerned about was not the outrageous stuff, blowing up buildings, stealing cars, zombies. shooting an Uzi. What was it? Zombies. Zombies, you know. <laughs> they knew they weren't going to do that in the real world. They were concerned about the stuff they could do. 
And their first big concern was language, was cursing, what they called swears. I want to read you some excerpts from some of the focus groups that really examine this. So Justin, little kids, they don't know the basic meanings of life. So once they see that, they're going to think, oh, that's how life goes. You can swear and go around hitting people. Ivan, I wouldn't let my little sister play true crime, Streets of L.A. It's a violent game in which the player takes on the role of a recently suspended L.A. police officer who fights street gangs and drug runners, corrupt cops, and zombies. He wouldn't do that because they say swears. Matthew, I don't like my little brother or sisters to watch me play Grand Theft Auto Vice City because of the language. They might swear at other people because of the attitude, how they do it in Vice City. They always give people attitude and swear at other people in the game. And that can make my family look bad, like my mom isn't raising us regular or anything. (laughs) And the other thing that struck close to home with them was sex, but not in the way the parents were concerned about it. The normal adolescent awkwardness that you see, especially in boys at age 13 and 14, really came to the forefront here. And that's what they responded to in the video games. The researcher. Are there any games you think you shouldn't be allowed to play at age 13? Patrick, sort of like The Sims. Ramon, yeah, The Sims. Because they go to people and, like, Patrick, they go to, like, people and, uh, like, (laughs) Ramon. Kiss. Patrick, yeah. (laughs) Researcher. Desperately trying to keep a straight face. <laughs> so because of the kissing, you don't think you should be able to play that game. How old should you have to be? Ramon? Kissing? Like 15. Patrick? 15? Yeah, maybe 14. Josh? I agree with both of them. Randy? Also, BMX Triple X, that was a game that combines BMX bike racing with uh, videos of naked women in a strip club. It was a public relations and financial disaster for the company that produced it, and they went bankrupt. But it got a lot of press. So, VX Triple X, researcher, how old would you have to be to play that game? Randy, 20. <laughs> Josh, I disagree. You could be like 17 or 18. If you're 18 and you still live with your mom and your mom comes in the room and you just beat the level and she sees a girl pull up her shirt, and there's nervous laughter from the kids in the room. Researcher, so obviously you've played this. <laughs> Patrick. See, he's played it! (laughs) Josh, no, I haven't. Researcher, well, how do you know what she did? Josh, because in a magazine, uh, researcher, you read about it. Josh, yeah. (laughs) Ramon, there's this new game out coming out called Playboy the Mansion. It's a game in which the player takes on the role of Hugh Hefner in both his professional and private lives. Some of the kids in the room gasp. Ramon, That's not good for (laughs) eight-year-olds. Patrick, that's for like 20-year-olds. Josh, that's for like a (laughs) hundred. Fundamentally, they're kids. And we saw that in the interviews, and we saw that. It really is quite uh, fascinating. Let me hand this back to you to wrap up the data, and then we can take take questions. questions. When you think about it, kissing and swearing... Those are things that kids can do in the real world. They're not going to be slaughtering zombies or you know, blowing up uh, Nazis or, or whatever else it is. But they are going to kiss and they, are, and they can swear. 
And so in a way, that's was kind of reassuring to us as we thought about it because it really shows that the typical kid, I mean, these were you know, non-institutionalized healthy kids, uh, that they really understand the difference between fantasy and reality. They know what can carry over and what can't. And that's, that's kind of a nice thing. So just, just to kind of wrap up, um, what do we think might be coming for video game research? I mean, we think and hope that it might be going on a trajectory similar to television research where people start to consider the context to play, who people are playing with, uh, you know, what the type of contact, content is, and not just all games are bad for you. Uh, we think, you know, we hope to see more focus on games stimulating creativity, which I think you all are doing here, learning and promoting healthy social relationships. Uh, and also, uh, one interesting thing, I mean, one of the things that, that our son was telling me once was he thought that in the future, games might actually be less violent because as the sophistication and power of computers increase, it's easier to do more complicated things that involve relationships and different options, whereas, you know, having something hit something else is very simple to program. And I thought that is really kind of a neat thing. And so I'm, I'm hoping he's right, and then we get games that are just so much more emotionally complex with less shooting, because I, I would like to play those games myself. Okay, so that's it for the formal part of the presentation. So, any questions, shared experiences, stories? So we're going to run this back around? Actually, it's a Oh, okay, so we need to run it around. Great. Perfect. Thank you. All right. Jason. Um, so um, I have a couple questions. I'll try to go through them quickly. Um, regarding your, uh, the last little anecdote about your son, this little theory, I, I also have the same theory, which I'll just add a little evidence of my own sort of anecdote to this idea, which is that if you look at the timeline of the growth of the brain across reptilian, mammalian, and neocortex levels, the curve of development of processing power of the brain follows an exponential curve. And if you then apply that to the development of computer processing, we're essentially in the, the reptilian stage of artificial intelligence. And so I think that that's partly why you see a lot of violence, uh, because that's all we have the processing for. So in, in a certain sense, I mean, in some way, as that, as, as that you know, uh, as the amount of processing power goes up, I think that we will see more interesting options. It's tempting um, to go, oh yeah? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's like a little kind of fun story. But um, uh, I did my own um, video game search actually in my undergrad. And um, I did a big survey and I interviewed, um, I had about 10,000 people respond to the survey looking at um, the, the point of it was to look at sexual orientation in relation to video game play. And, like what's interesting about that and what were the motivations and content and stuff like that. And uh, I just wanted to share that the thing that seemed to come out for me was that interest in violent games was more correlated to how people self-identified their gender rather than their biological sex. And so I know when you're dealing with 13 year olds, it's kind of an awkward thing to deal with, but I did have people as young as 12 and 13 take a survey. And um, so it might be something to look at as you look at your you know, explorations of female players you know, to try to just keep in mind that gender is just as important as, as uh, biology. If I may add something to that, because it, that's, it's an interesting variable, I said variables, but you, one of the things you have to be really careful about is assumptions of that as to whether that's really what you're measuring. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, the most commonly used psychological test in the Western world is the MMPI, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. Uh, now on its second uh, edition, but the original one 
was if you get a PhD at Minnesota, you have to, you, you wake me up I at three in the morning, man. I'll give you all the data on this. But it, it was uh, developed as a way of finding out who had specific mental illnesses as defined them. One of the mental illnesses in the 1930s was homosexuality. And so there's a scale, scale five, now called MF for male, female, uh, that was uh, originally supposed to be a measure of homosexuality. Their initial group was hospitalized psychiatric patients, and they compared them to what are now called the 1938 outstate Minnesota farmers visiting non-psychiatric floors at the University of Minnesota hospitals. That was their standard. And what they discovered when they started testing college students was, oh my God, we have all of these gay college students. What's going on? Everyone's spiking. And what they were actually measuring was a diversity of interests. Do you like to read? Do you like theater? Do you like, you know, a, a whole range of things that 1938 outstate Minnesota farmers probably didn't? So if you score right in the middle of that and you're a student at MIT, I wouldn't worry about your sexuality. I'd worry about other things because that's really what it's measuring. You know, you should have that diversity of interest. So it's just something to be careful of when you use that as a variable. You may actually be measuring something else. You have to be really uh, careful about it. I have one last question, sure, which is sure. just um, in terms of what you had 68% of boys and 29% of girls that had played M rated games that were age 15. I wanted, I, have you ever looked at like what other um, under age 18 activities are they doing? For example, like what are the percentage of boys who smoke cigarettes or um, you know, have looked at pornography or have taken drugs or had sex? You know, we, we didn't ask about things like that because we didn't want kids to incriminate themselves and want to encourage honesty. We, some people also wish we had collected data on family violence or something, and, and, and I don't know if that would be valid or reliable, but we did collect some data on you know, participation in activities, sports, and you know, after-school things and so on. We did find very interestingly that boys who played realistic sports games like Tony Hawk or and, you know, basketball, football, things like that, they were more. They were spending more hours per week in, in exercise activities than kids who real didn't world play exercise. Yeah, real world yeah. exercise. Now I can't. I don't know if the games caused that, but that was just an interesting observation. Uh, and so I think there are a lot of other things to be seen. You know, we just kind of stumbled across that yeah, in mean, the focus groups. So we went back and recoded the games to see if there was something there in the survey. More likely, you know, I'm using Occam's razor. More likely, it's the kids who like to play basketball. You know, when they don't have a place to play that, they'll play it on the the game, you know, they're on yeah. the console, they're used to that. But kids in uh, focus groups did say they'd started new sports because of video yeah. games, or they would try to move, like a basketball move in, in the game, and then go outside and try it. You know, so there's a lot of interesting things. And a lot of skateboard, you know, yeah. probably getting something right on a skateboard and Tony Hawk and then going yeah. out on the street and doing it. But w one last thought that your question's raised for me, though, is also the issue of developmental stage. Uh, we know that, that uh, kids, if kids who are violent at, at a young age or aggressive, that may or may not you know, predict how they are later on. We don't know if there's a critical age for certain kinds of media exposure, and most of the research so far in video games has completely ignored the issue of developmental stage or critical periods. So that's another area that really needs to be uh, studied. Uh, about uh, the development of, uh, 
um, great power compared to them. Um, right. and, and, and they do a lot of oxygen-led testing uh, 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 on brains of them on the European games. But I really heard that as being a concern in the US of people playing games because of that's like yeah, there's, uh, I can say a couple things about that. I mean, the, the brain studies, first of all, are an interesting issue because uh, there was just a very interesting publication. I think it might have been in The Lancet, looking at if you showed people research that had little MRI pictures in it, you know, and said that the brain studies had confirmed something or didn't show them little pictures, they were much more likely to believe the ones that had the little pictures. And then we have kind of this, this idea of it's got a, a cool brain picture in color, it must be true. And there have been some crazy things introduced into evidence, in fact, in, in states where nine states now have passed, I think, uh, laws over banning the sale of some type of violent video game to kids usually under, seven, under 18, yeah, sometimes under 17. They've all been overturned immediately. Right, and, and a couple of judges have singled out the, the brain scan evidence as particularly ridiculous. Uh, but in terms of the different cultures and the concerns about that, uh, we, tr- we, we tried to review what the concerns were across the world and also the different rating systems. And, and we, we found, and in Japan, you see, I, mean, I, was, I only know a little bit about this, but I know that there's much, I think the context of violence issue is much better understood there in terms of, you know, Understanding that just showing blood will not make somebody into a into a dangerous person. Uh, there, the rate, there's actually also I think an icon for for love as well as sex in, in Japanese video games. I don't know Sorry, why that is. Perhaps yeah. you can explain that to me. Uh, but uh, one, another thing that's very interesting is in Germany they think that we're a bunch of idiots to be all freaked out about. Oh my God, there's a flash of animated breast on this character. Uh, you know they're concerned about about violence because of their military history. They will sometimes ask for blood. Say it's a, a war game kind of thing. They want the blood to be turned green, or they want sprockets, you know, to come out when you injure someone to imply that they're a robot. Uh, it's, so it's, there is there are some commonalities. I've been interviewed by people in Germany and Australia and Greece and and South America and Canada and I don't know where all. And there's a lot of shared concern about the violence, but there are also all these very interesting differences. Yeah, well, I think the underlying message is there are concerns. How they're expressed is affected by the individual culture. Mm-hmm. But there is this underlying, oh my God, I don't have control over what my child is doing, and how will my child develop, and how might that be different from what I, I envisioned? That locus of control issue. <coughs> but the instantiation of that is different from culture to culture. Actually, that raises just one other issue. The, the one difference between video games and all these other moral panics, uh, which is something I've noticed as a parent, is that. If you're concerned about a, you know, a violent DVD, you can, you can get it out of the library or, or from a store, and you can fast-forward through that thing and see what's in there. You can flip through the comic book. If you don't know how to use the Xbox 360, you, know, you can only get so far in that thing. You don't know. It's literally a black box. I mean, you, you, you don't know what's in there. You don't know what's going to come up after they've played for three hours. Uh, and that can be kind of scary for a parent. because of an anecdote, which is that I never really played video games until I got to college and lived with some guys who had, like, 10 billion video game consoles, and I realized these were not marketed to me, but they're totally rad. (laughs) And I I started playing all these, you know, what what would probably be considered super violent video games. I wonder if you wanted to say a little bit about, you know, the marketing or the video game industry. Sure. Just to, to clarify one thing. The major study, the 1,254 people, we didn't involve girls in all of that. It was the focus groups where we found, before we found out how wrong we were, we yeah. made the, you know, for economic reasons, made the assumptions right. only go with boys. Right. Uh, but our data is on girls as well. Right. And Henry Jenkins may have some things to say about the issue with girls, too, since he's been involved with that with Justine Cassell and others uh, from Barbie to Mortal Kombat and the su- successor volume to that. Uh, but... Uh, 
I think one of the things that was very interesting is I think that boys growing up, we asked them about, one of the games we, we had in this focus group that we discussed was uh, Code Veronica, is that, is, is that Resident Evil, Code Veronica? That's a zombie one, right? And there's a, a strong female character who's at the center of it. And we asked the boys if they, you know, how they felt about playing as a girl. And they were fine with it. They were saying, you know, it, you know, she's she's really an interesting character, and one of them even even said something like, "It shows that, you know, I don't know, girls can be strong and brave too, not just boys." I thought, "Whoa, I bet their moms would love to hear that." Mm-hmm. But yeah. they really they were really fine with it, and because uh, we've heard so much about the negatives in terms of girls' body image in particular, you know, the, the kind of anatomically ridiculous uh, characters in video games. But you, of course, you get that with the male characters too. So that's an issue for boys, but. Um, there, you should look, look for some things by Justine Cassell and some other people out there. There's a lot being written. Her feeling is that, girl, that people have really underestimated girls, that the games are stupid, that are targeted at girls, and that, uh, well, you know... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, what's, what's terrifying is if you go uh, to the, what's, there's the Barbie site, Everything well, Girl, I think yeah. it's called. Um, personally, I'm much more concerned at the non-commercial games, the advert games and things like that, being marketed at very young children, or to very young children, than with any of the stuff we had here. And if you go to the, I think it's everythinggirl.com site, which is Barbie stuff, yeah. it, it's, it's horrendous. You should not have admitted so quickly that you knew that. Um, <laughs> but I, the, I, I did look into it a little. Yes. I guess the, reason, the main reason I wanted to bring it up is just yeah. that, uh, you know, uh, I, I get the sense that the idea that more aggressive girls are going to be more into video games or something like that. But I mean, uh, you know, when I when I was a kid, I, I've done martial arts since I was like six, and and been you know I got punched in the face for the first time when I was like six, right? And have done it happily ever since. And most of my girlfriends were involved with this, and I didn't ever notice people really playing video games. It was all the boys who did that. So anyway, I know. yeah, it is one of the holy grails of the industry is to have the great game that can sell to girls. Dance Dance Revolution was one of them. Uh, especially if you need, you need to buy new hardware you know, <laughs> for it. Uh, but you know, th- that's one of the great things. You want, you, hey, you, know, you, you want venture capital? Go for that. <laughs> yes, sir. I have a question about the whole, like you did surveys about parents. And the thing that really bothers me in the conversations about television and about video games is all these people want to make laws about restricting video game sales and stuff. And it, it, I mean, it ties with all things in our society, sex education, everything. Why can't parents talk to their children? Why is this such a difficult thing? And do parents do parents mention this? I mean, in my household, when my little brothers wanted a new game, they first had to rent it from Blockbuster. They got to pay, play the first six hours or so, and they had to play it on the TV in the family room, and that's how we judged the games. And we talked about it. If my mom thought it was too violent, we sat down with my little brothers and said, this is why you're not playing this now, because of this, this, and this. And they understood, and it was a conversation. And it can be actually very assuring to a child, too. Yeah, and just like my little brother's doing, they can't play Grand Theft Auto. It wasn't even so much for the killing or anything. It was because it was you're killing police officers because you can get health points by servicing with prostitutes. Those are the two main reasons. Yeah. The, let me just catch one thing that you said. You said there are all these people who are doing that. It's actually a very small number of people who are act- aggressively pushing these laws. They get a lot of publicity. It's kind of like the distortion one gets with the school shootings. You know, school violence has gone down and gone down significantly over the past 25 years. The coverage of school violence has gone up exponentially. 
Well, it's, and and so not, people's perception yeah. is quite different from the reality. We're not of saying it. that all politicians or activists who are anti-game are cynical. I no. think a lot of them, all they know about video games is probably what they've seen on the news or maybe in a bunch of clips that someone brought into Congress. And if that's all you know about it, my God, it looks terrible. And uh, you know, and they just don't have, they don't have the sophistication. And it's something that they can show results on right away. You can't, you know, say I'm going to cure juvenile delinquency in the next six years or four years. They can say I'm going to protect your children from this egregious stuff. So uh, just want to make you know, be clear on that. Yeah, and, and frankly, a lot of parents are making smart decisions. Um, the it was interesting when we talked to some of the parents. Uh, they. You know, they would have rules, but the kids would sort of play them a bit. And you, it's one of those things, for those of you who are parents or are planning on becoming a parent, there are certain skills that you want your children to have, but you don't want them to use against you. <laughs> and you need to make that distinction. Uh, I remember one kid we interviewed in a focus group, one of the ones I ran, that he said that, yeah, he and his brother would decide what uh, video game they wanted to rent from Blockbuster. And then what they do is go and get the goriest, most disgusting thing they could find and give it to their mom and say, this is what we want, can we have, can we have it? And she'd look at it and turn stark white and go, oh my God, no, that's, that's awful. You can't play this. And then they go, well, what about this one? It's the one they really wanted. Oh, that's much better. So they understood the concept of anchoring. They understood all of, you know, so social pressure, all that. And you want your kids to have those skills. You just don't want them to use them against you. Um, I thought so. They're very smart kids. I just like I mean, with the kids saying only five percent of their parents were were playing with them often or always in the room. Right. Like, what is well, with? I mean, even if parents have ex- concerns about the games, maybe they're not making a lot. Maybe that's too too harsh. But a lot of parents are very concerned about what their kids are doing. Some of it's a generational thing. Uh, I, when our son uh, would, or when I would play with our son. On uh, some of the James Bond games, uh, he would thoroughly trounce me, and he would enjoy thoroughly trouncing me on it. He was much better. Uh, I did not let him know how much I enjoyed his enjoyment of thoroughly trouncing me, um, because it's important to have that part, aspect of a relationship with one's uh, child. Uh, part of that is a generational thing, and part of that is the technology. If you think back to computers, I see, you know, we have a Mac here, you have a Mac there. I've seen a bunch of them around. Uh, back in the old days, I had my son convinced, by the way, when I started out in computers in the 70s that they were gasoline-powered and had a little starter cord on the side. I had him going for a couple of years on that one. Um, and he doesn't talk to me anymore. I uh, but you know, it was this incredible interface. So we had punch cards. We were dealing with Fortran and COBOL in there. I actually knew people who worked with plug boards, and they programmed with that. Well, now, you know, it's so easy, anyone can, you know, pretty much do it. It's the same thing with video games. That, the interface... Just being in the room. Well, that's not what we asked the kids, though. Okay. We said, yeah. how often do they play with you? I think many more of them have parents that were in the room, or at least some of the time. Okay. Right. And I think, I think parents, yeah, I think parents did describe some of the conversations that are kind of similar to what you're talking about. And we really encouraged parents, you know, it, it, you know, we're asked to give advice, like on the radio or something, we'd say, you know, get the console or TV out of the kid's bedroom, yeah. put it in a common place, get them some headphones. You know, they can take it down to the basement when they have you know, friends over, you know, Saturday night, but you want to be able to walk by and see what they're doing and also how they're reacting to what they're seeing. Because in that way, if there's something in level 17 that upsets you, you can talk about it. 
You, you, if you're very angry or wound up, you can also watch that. And also, I mean, there's a lot of other research from other fields, like sleep research, that says having, you know, a game, you know, game machine or, or TV in or your room is, yeah, screws up, screws up your sleep. So there's lots of good reasons to just take it out of there. And then it happens actually, like you're saying. I think if we did this survey over today, we'd, we'd find more parents playing with kids because of the Wii. I think yeah. that would ma that makes it much more accessible. All right. And um, you know, the other thing, just on a practical uh, basis, if you're watching someone who's playing video games. One sign that you should be concerned is if they're more upset at the end of a game playing session than at the beginning. Most people, you know, they may feel tense, they work out some aggression, they do whatever, but they feel pretty good at the end. If you have someone who's consistently feeling worse, that may be a sign of some other issues. So, anyone else? Um, the sociologist Edwin Sutherland, um, who had always been kind of, as far as previous meetings, had definitely caused concerns. They looked at violent film throughout the 40s and 50s. They really see a correlation between violent films and people. And so a film which came out in the early 1960s called Peeping Tom, um, in which there's actually the, the beginnings of the first person murder. You're actually getting the point of view of the murderer as he's committing crime. And read some really interesting things about that. Cut away to now, I'm just curious, did you differentiate between violent video games as far as the kind of overview of the game and the game that's the first person shooter? Is there a difference? That's something we yeah. would have loved to find yeah. out, and we weren't able to slice it up that fine. Well, I think what, what this field really needs is some observational studies to, to watch, to, to tape hours and hours of kids playing, ideally with friends, and, just, and as well as alone, and see how it affects them. Uh, I think there may well be an, a concern there, and some researchers have speculated that you know, video games might be worse for children than television because you are taking that role and acting these things out. Uh, on the other hand, though, I mean, if, if you're speculating, I, I think if you're, if, I know if I'm watching a scary movie, I'm much more likely to have nightmares from that than a scary video game because when you're playing a video game, you have to make it keep going. You always are aware that it's a game because you're making it happen and you're you know, changing around. Whereas if it's a movie, you're just sitting there taking it. I think it's possible your brain interprets that more as something that's really happening. Now, that's completely speculative on my part, but I think one could argue either way that games might be less bad for you than films. The other, there's some recent data out that I found very interesting on uh, couch potatoes and playing video games as a couch potato versus uh, watching television or DVDs. Uh, and you are less likely to be obese if you play video games. Mm -hmm. Now, the obvious reason for that is you're using your hands. You can't, you know, do that. It's hard to... Well, uh, and that's something else that we may interfere with. Well, you know, there's also uh, the argument that with boards, TV you're yeah. getting lots of ads for snack foods, which yeah. would be the other, other right. issue you're not getting, get, getting yet anyway in video games. Well, it's starting to. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so earlier I talked about a, a lot of fallacies that are being promoted by, uh, by, um, by the, the news uh, but I'm wondering whether there are active fallacies that you see, or, or maybe misconceptions that you see coming from either the game development or publishing facility uh, or the defenders that could possibly be addressed with the research uh, or need looking into tainted that are making or not being substantiated. Well, we did show that there is a correlation and even a dose response relationship among these young teenagers with having uh, video games that are M-rated among their favorites, and getting into trouble with fairly common things, you know, getting into fights, uh, destroying some property. Uh, now, again, we don't know if this is a marker alone. That's how we initially interpret it. 
whether it's causal in one direction, causal the other direction, or there's a third factor that's influencing or them both. Or fourth or fifth or sixth. Or a fourth, fifth, you know. Um, so there is no basis for saying there's absolutely no problem with young kids playing video games. Uh, you know, it's kind of like trying to prove the null hypothesis. It gets a little dicey. Uh, so that sort of claim, I think, you know, is something that we've got to really be concerned about. You should talk about the, I, the thing, the G4 thing, what well, was picked up in the blogs. Well, go ahead. No, you, I'm you, not sure you, what you're talking about. Well, you were the one who was quoted on that you, when, when oh, you the, said, "Yeah, I mean, oh. the selective uh, attention." Oh, I see. What you mean. All right, selective attention. Well, I mean, they were paying attention to the stuff you said they liked. Oh yeah. This is how marriage works after That's 20 right. years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's very interesting. Our, our data were, you know, cherry picked, uh, and it's fascinating to watch. Some of the interpretations of our studies that when we read them, we have no idea what they're talking about because it's you know so far removed from what we did. Uh, but w when uh, we were interviewed on uh, G4, the gaming network, and one of the things we talked about was if you look at, and we had a small number of boys who did not play video games. Played less, you know, did not play during a typical week was how we defined it. And they were actually at greater risk for some of these behaviors uh, that got them into trouble than kids who did play video games. Um, it's a small, and you know, we wouldn't feel too comfortable expanding upon them, but it's a very interesting trend, and it makes sense because one of the things that we found is that, uh, especially among the boys, playing video games was seen as a social activity, and so the ability to play video games looks like a marker of social competence. So those kids who are left out of that conversation, you know, who don't play with friends, are more likely to be the victim of bullies. They may uh, uh, more, get in trouble. They, they may just, it, it may be reflecting problems. this lack of social competence. That doesn't mean you treat them by saying, sit down with Halo, kid, you know. Uh, but this, this was you know, dramatically misinterpreted. You know, it was all over the web saying, you know, kids who don't play games are worse off than, you know, than anything. It's terrible. You know, games are good for you. We knew it all along kind of thing. Yeah, it's fascinating to watch how stuff uh, goes on blogs now. Some, you know, some of the, we were on thousands of blogs, some of them with readership in the double digits. Uh, and uh, it, it's, you know, some people were, you know, proposing marriage to Cheryl. I want you to bear my children after this. Sweet. No one asked me anything <laughs> like that. Uh, my favorite blog comment was from someone who said, I'd buy this book if I could read. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> uh, but it, it's, it's like a giant game of telephone. You know, we played when I was a kid, and we watched the message just get distorted. Mm -hmm. So it's one of this. I saw a hand up back there very shyly. It was, was working in public health with uh, technology, video games in particular, and um, childhood obesity mm -hmm. epidemic. And um, at first I came in thinking, yes, I'm going to save the babies. And of course over time it got a lot more complicated. And I wanted to get your opinion on how you feel about games as a form of intervention, because that was sort of a lot of what was going on in the last year or so. Um, thinking maybe we can make games that will teach you how to eat vegetables or games that will just make you less fat. And, <laughs> yeah. and with all your experience in, with 
games and violence, but I wanted to get your input on that. I can do the public health view, and then you could do... Then I'll do the cynical okay. former public health professor view. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the... You know, we always... Larry thinks that, that more than half of psychologists graduate in the bottom half of their class. 73.4% yeah, um, of psychologists graduate in the bottom half of their class. And when I lecture to psychologists, I watch how many of them write that down. <laughs> you, you always... You, you always know the flaws of your own people, your own profession, you know. And I think there are a lot of public health people who I think are very well-intentioned and think if only we give them this brochure, explain the situation, people will change. Well, if that were true, you know, I mean, it's one thing to get them to change brands of toothpaste, perhaps, but to get them to, ch- to stop smoking or get them to wear a seatbelt or to, you know, uh, perform a complex behavior differently. I mean, that's, that's a whole different kind of thing. And uh, people are sometimes very naive about that. Uh, but I, th- I, th- I mean, there's certainly a big games for health movement out there. There's been some interesting things with people who have a specific illness, such as kids with diabetes, using games to deal with the disease or to communicate with other kids and be less isolated. So I think there definitely is some potential. One of the, I, one of the things that we're working right now uh, is in a very early proposal stage is a game that might pr- promote positive youth development uh, by, by, working, by using game technology to, uh, to, based on real people's stories, to model how you deal with certain choice points and setbacks in your life. But, you, you know, to the, to the funder, we, wouldn't, we aren't calling a game to the funder. <laughs> the kids would perceive it as a game. It's a simulation. A computer-based simulation. Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, if I, first, may I ask you where you're working in public health in this? Oh, um, I recently, before I came here, I graduated from BU School of Public Health, and um, I was working at Brigham and Women's Hospital, which is a very Okay. Uh, my take on this as a former epi prof years ago, uh, if you look at the fairly simple-minded stuff that's done in public health that generally is ineffective at the target audience but makes the people who, are, who do it, the perpetrators, feel good about themselves, that is content-driven. I'm going to tell you what foods you should not eat, and you, of course, will follow me because I know these things. If you look at the stuff that tends to be effective, it's context-driven, not content-driven. And so you're dealing with other issues such as, do I have the right to challenge authority? Can I form- formulate hypotheses on my own? Uh, can I make important decisions? And that's where that stuff can get generalized into health behaviors. But if you're doing, you know, this is Charlie the Carrot. Charlie the carrot needs to get across the bridge. Kids aren't stupid, you know? Um, yeah, one of my favorites was like anti-bullying games where they say, tell the bully that he's hurting your feelings. The bully will say, excellent, that was my goal. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Yes, sir. Addiction is a tricky question. Uh, I, I'm actually supposed to give a presentation on that, and I have to figure out what I believe before I give a presentation to a bunch of uh, a group that's dealing with gambling addiction. It, the hallmarks of addiction traditionally are increased tolerance. You want more and more of it. Physical reactions on withdrawal and a predictable course you know, going through the DTs or jonesing or whatever it happens to be, depending on the drug or, or uh, alcohol or whatever you're using, when, you, when it gets removed. You don't really have that 
for most of the people who are called addicted to the internet or video games or gambling or gambling or a whole bunch of things you know we we tend to we we've changed the popular meaning of addiction whereas it may simply be if you remember you know intro psych a variable ratio reinforcement schedule you know that every so often it pays off and so you want to keep playing everquest which is you know the slang term for that was evercrack well because people were drawn to it well not everyone we don't know. Uh, I, I wish there were um, you know, a way we could say this. I, I have cl clinician friends of mine who are treating kids who are addicted to video games. But somehow that problem doesn't come about by itself. You know, the kid also has 14 other major problems. Or, I don't think that's really the issue. Yeah, or th most likely the situation here is if someone's are depressed or anxious yeah. and they're they self-medicating. Yeah, yeah, a certain amount of self-medicating for depression with video games might be okay and it's certainly better than drugs, for example. But if you get into that too far, you can end up really isolating yourself and you know and it could make things worse. Yeah, I mean that's the speculation anyway. I, I had dinner uh, with someone who asked me, she found out I was doing this research and she said well she had a twenty two year old son who had dropped out of college and was spending uh, all day living in her basement, it's in Berkeley, in California, uh, living in her basement, didn't have a job, uh, was just grabbing snack foods and was uh, playing games on the computer for about 18 hours a day. And did I think that was a problem? Uh, this woman had her doctorate in clinical psychology. Uh, I said, yeah, I mean, that's a problem, but I don't think video games are the major issue there. You know, this is a, a kid or a young man who had some serious psychiatric problems that had gone unrecognized. And one of the symptoms, one of the ways he expressed it was through video games. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that that's the problem. There's also a developmental stage issue. The, uh, you know, oh, yeah. I mean, when you have, uh, if, if you can remember back when you were 13, probably all of you had said, yeah, mom, I'll be right up to dinner, and then didn't show up for a while because you were doing something more interesting. And you know, th that's just normal at that age. It's just less normal at 25 or 35 or 45. So one of, one of the observations you made that I thought was significant was emphasizing the fact that we've seen research is researching negative effects and isolation of positive effects. Mm -hmm. And I think there's enormous implications for the public policy in this area. So one of the debates I, we've all been, deba we've been debating some of the same people uh, late I think that one of the debates I was in this guy who was a major critic of, of violent video games said if I'm right then I protect the next generation from violence and aggression if you're right all I've done is make sure kids play outside in other words that there was no loss no negative consequence of banning violent video games because there was no positive benefit uh, in his in that equation and so it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of odd attitude for a researcher to take. Well, uh, it's a very narrow Pascal's wager type of uh, thing. I, I, I can tell you, I'm, I'm asked all the time about positive benefits, you know, positive things from video games. And the way I answer the question often surprises the reporter, because the reporter expects me to talk about hand-eye coordination or figure ground issues. And I talk about our 18-year-old son who's very interested in international politics and uh, Middle Eastern affairs. And I can trace that directly to his playing of video games. Uh, he liked 
uh, Age of Empires and various other historical reenactment things. You like some of the political games like Tropico where you get to create your own uh, political system and see what happens when you push, you know, apply pressure in different areas. And from that he started reading about it. And from reading about it, he decided to take some courses when he was in high school. And he also started sitting in on some uh, lectures at the Kennedy School and Harvard Law School. But it's all directly traceable to the exposure of video games. And that's not being raised by the people you're talking about. Now, that's a missed opportunity. Yeah, the other issue is that is the opportunity cost, I guess you could say. If we're focusing on, okay, we assume that these violent video games are bad and, you know, First, there's the effort of trying to figure out, well, what do we mean by violence and how do we define that and who's responsible and how do we operationalize it, which is actually the main problem with a lot of these bills just from the get-go. But even if you do that, if you're saying, okay, this is the problem, there's so many more known, solid, larger contributors to violence and aggression and, and other kinds of problems. Why would we go after this tiny possible effect from video games when we could be putting attention and money into these things that we know are issues? That's my main concern. My question is, um, you, you were saying that uh, you're trying to raise funding to do the focus testing of girls. Uh, would you carry out the research? Would it be like the same questions, or are you going to format what, what you've done already, and how, how would that change, if at all? I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, we, we'd sit down and figure out what makes the most sense. Hire someone from MIT. <laughs> I think it's going to be a bit of both. You know, that we are going to have some overlap. You know, we had pretty good questions on that, and we also want to be able to compare them, at least ones that are not time-dependent, you know, related to a particular thing that happened. But, yeah, we want to learn from this, because we found out, you know, one of the great things about doing research is when you find out when you're wrong. And it's often much, much more interesting than when you find out when you're right. You know, yeah. it's, a, it's a blow to the ego, but who cares? And we had a fairly open protocol, too. I mean, yeah. one of the things we, we didn't want to say, so what do you think about violent games, kid? You know, we, we, we recruited kids who, we, who, who had played uh, a, at least two of some very popular games that were out for using multiple platforms. So they would have a common focus to talk about. And we had some, some pictures, you know, screenshots from those games scattered around the table. And we started off by asking them to just pick, pick a, a, a character they liked and talk about why they liked that character. And then we gradually kind of went into, well, you know, uh, you, you may notice that the, you know, the shots here, they're all from games that have fighting or shooting or blood. Do you think those kind of games uh, might affect kids in some way? And we went into, you know, does a game have to be violent to, to be fun? But other kinds of games are fun. And all kinds of things arose that we didn't expect. For example, in a couple of the groups, kids said, you know, I don't, video games aren't a problem. What scares me is the news, because that's real. And one of the, a dad in a, in a group also raised that, that my, my son has nightmares from watching the news. You could argue about whether the news represents reality. That's quite an issue in itself, but kids think that it does, and it terrifies them. Yeah. I mean, an, another thing, just on a practical basis, as Henry mentioned, we're uh, associated with Massachusetts General Hospital, and so we need IRB approval, of course, to do the research, and there is one standard approach approved by the it's IRB important. when you do clinical research. And it doesn't matter whether it's an experimental liver transplant or a focus group. And so we had to gather all of these people, and before we started, we had to read them this thing, which included, if you suffer side effects from this uh, focus group, please go to the nearest emergency room. <laughs> a couple of times I said, I can tell you which department will see you. Uh, <laughs> 
I, I guess to finish but, up, I think we probably we probably try to use a somewhat similar open-ended protocol. But we, we the girls, we probably we, I don't know if we can, could find you know five or six different uh, violent games. We probably include more T-rated games and more things. You have some researchers who argue that E-rated games are very violent because you have a you know a little pink puffball throwing a projectile at another little marshmallow, and that's violent. And maybe if you're five, that is violent. But you know, <laughs> that's a whole other issue. The studies that were done, and you brought it up again uh, when talking about the games that, that are aiming to teach something. Media generally, this, this difference between looking just at the content and understanding the context that's placed in. And I was curious, um, from some of what you were talking, and, and is this seen, and how easy is it to test for whether, for, for is, is it like there's two different views of, of media? And some people get sit in a content view and others get context? Or is, is, it, uh, is that even more so? Is it even more subtle and context dependent than that? Is that, is that a very broad distinction or yeah, important I mean, one? I mean, you're getting it from McLuhan and I mean, all sorts of things uh, there. Even from a, even from a like, testable level that, um, that like seeing a violent act uh, may not mean that, uh, like, oh, I saw that. That looks great to do. Well, if, if you look at some of, for example, Al Bandura's famous work with the Bobo dolls, uh, he had a young kid, and I, I should say, you know, Al is a friend of mine. Cheryl has worked with him. He's a great, brilliant, brilliant guy. And he did some classic work with having young kids uh, in a room with some toys, and so they see someone punch one of these inflatable weighted, it's called a bobo doll, and it goes down. And they watch, and they watched it, um, you know, with the TV. kids. Yeah, they see it on TV, or you know, there are a series of these. But you know, were the kids more likely, if they saw the violent act, to go and punch the doll? And this is, you know, one of the most frequently cited studies in all of psychology, not just things with violence. But when you think about it. There really isn't much you can do with a weightable bobo doll other than punch it and watch it come back. I worry much more about a child who goes over and has a conversation. Let's talk Even a about warm, that empathic conversation. Um, and you know, one needs that perspective. Yeah. It also gets into a difficulty of operationalizing these things. You, you can slice things into so many little cells that you, know, that you, you, just, you end up with mush. And an, another huge problem with video game, a lot, a lot of the studies have involved a short exposure in a lab. Well, real kids, they're seeing games, they're playing games that they select for hours at a time, sometimes alone, sometimes with friends, sometimes with older siblings. And all those contexts and situations and the different developmental stage, they probably all play a role. And you know, the, the thing about, you know, is it a first or third person shooter? You, you, can never nail all those down, which is why I think a, a, a longitudinal study on video games is just not possible. Uh, so, so that's a, so you do have to kind of choose things carefully, but you also have to be very clear. I think in your, uh, in, when, you're, in your when you discuss the limitations of your study, I chose this one narrow thing for this narrow purpose, but there's all these things that I'm leaving out that might be possible. I mean, because we had a practical orientation, you know, we, we were focusing on what can we find out that we can explain to ordinary people, to politicians, you know, who are dumber than ordinary people, and so on, and that, you know, that parents can use. And so we used odds ratios, for example, something was two or three times, you know, more, more likely to happen, as opposed to, uh, you know, 
uh, t tests and, and, and over things. Yeah, yeah which, which no one knows what the heck they mean unless they're a psychologist. Yeah. yeah. I kind of, in terms of methodologies and such, and I, I know that I'm, I'm sure you have your own gripes about IRBs and the sort of limitations mm -hmm. that they want you to conduct research in this area. Um, I wondered, are you familiar with like the, um, the like Lego kind of research projects, the, the way that they, that, um, Lego has this like consulting sort of approach that they use to your research, and there's a media scholar um, out of the UK, David Gauntlet, who conducts media research using, basically what he does is he, he operates from this idea that rather than looking at your focus groups and sort of taking this like doctor, you know, examining sort of a biomedical approach, he tries to sort of get them to participate in the activity of constructing narratives or constructing, in this case, objects. And so he'll, he'll spend a day working with, with, with an individual or a group of kids, and he'll have them take Legos and build their stories. So he'll ask them a question like, you know, build, you know, what, what, is, what does video game violence mean to you? Build it with Legos and show that with Legos, and maybe they'll create a creature that somehow, and then he'll somehow represents that, and he'll um, have them talk about that process. And by engaging with the child over the course of a long day, you get them to, to think about the topic and the question in more detail, rather than just giving you sort of a, a canned response, possibly canned response that's coming right off the top of their head. I just wondered whether you have ever, you know, if you have any thoughts on that type of approach or, you know. It, sound, I mean, it sounds very interesting. I, I was not familiar with that, uh, you know, that particular approach, but it's not an either or thing. Uh, I, part, of the, part of the great job when you're doing research is to question assumptions that you have. When we put together uh, our research team, our lab, and we had public health people and psychology, you know, clinical psychologists, developmental psychologists, uh, child psychiatrists, uh, an adult psychiatrist, an old psychoanalyst type who I don't think had ever seen a game. Uh, we had a, uh, an evolutionary biologist working with us on this and a, a bunch of uh, recent um, college grads who got to tell their parents they got a job at Harvard because they were good at video games, take that mom and dad. Um, but what we discovered at the beginning is that we all had different assumptions about what we would find. You know, some of us were gamers, some of us were not, some of us had kids, some of us did not, some of us were recently teenagers, more so than others. Uh, and what, what happened is that we got these assumptions on the table and our ex expectations on the table. What we realized was not only were they different, but that none of us had any solid basis for our opinions. And that was fascinating. And that caused us really to go back to first principles. And that's when you start going with, you know, how do I use this? It, would that shed some insight? Mm -hmm. it, would another approach shed some insight? Uh, this, what we did was clearly preliminary. I wouldn't say it's anything more. Is it the only way to go? No. Uh, am I saying that experimental studies are bad? No, I'm saying certain ones I think are, you know, do not support their conclusions. But I think there's a great place for experimental studies and for all sorts of things. Uh, and probably, you know, what, what you're talking about. Rather than looking at you know, neurological responses or measuring dopamine mm -hmm. in the brain or, mm -hmm. you know, these kinds of things, but to, to just try to talk to the kid and find out. I mean, you, you said yourselves that it's context was often more revealing than content. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just wondering you know, how can, because your methods are very numerical, you know, in a certain sense. I mean, well, not necessarily some numerical, of them but, yeah. but it's, I'm just wondering like, could you, let's say, go deeper with individuals, with individual players, 
Um, oh, yeah. And, and rather than you know, trying to hit a, a broad number of people, how would that change the way that you look at your studies? Um, we did both qualitative and quantitative research for that reason. I mean, and I, I, would, have, I would have liked to observe, originally I hoped to observe kids playing in groups and just, just go back and afterwards and make some poor graduate students code that stuff to see if we could see, you know, how they behave differently. But, I mean, one of the things that we worked very hard on is to just talk to the kids, you know, without trying not to say, you know, well, what do you, you know, this is a violent game, is that bad? Or anything that would remotely prejudice them because... You know, and even to call a game violent is to say there's a lot of shooting and blood here. You know, what do, what do you think about that? And be as neutral as we possibly could, not, not laugh when they said the Sims. Uh, and, and that was hard. I mean, and, and that takes actually years of skill. One of the problems with the traditional way we receive research results in the journal article, you can't tell from a journal article on a focus group how they, what the kind of rapport they had with the, with the subjects, how leading they were. I mean, I'd, that's why I'd, I'd love to see more online journals include, like, you know, audio clips focus groups or something, for example, so you can hear for yourself what, you know, what, how, what was the tone of voice the kids used, how this, you know, some of the things that don't get written up in a traditional journal, I think, may be far more important. Maybe that's a little bit of what you're getting yeah, at, is there's a lot that's being missed. It's really great what you guys have done because it's it's so it is, as Henry said in the, year of the introduction it's so great to be able to engage with with researchers who are you know not jumping on the bandwagon that you sort of set up in the beginning with the lecture and so I'm just my questioning was just to try to expose ways that different methods could be combined to cover more perspectives. Well, on your on your last point. Uh, there are many people who never let data interfere with their preconceived notions, and we saw that. Uh, when Grand Theft Auto 4 was released about two weeks after our book came out. And we did a lot of interviews with that. And Cheryl did a lot of the local TV stuff. And there were two stations that pretty much asked her the same questions. And she gave them the same answers. And we watched them that night. And one station set it up with uh, experts say that there's nothing for parents to worry about. And they quote Cheryl. And the other one says, yeah, experts say that parents should be very concerned. And they use pretty much the same quote from Cheryl. <laughs> yeah. There's, and the other, the other th- I think we had a real advantage here in that media, media violence research is not our career. Yeah. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of what we do is, is using data to reduce the stigma of mental illness. Or, or uh, to, right now, Larry has a grant from uh, NIDA to educate the public about, about science. And, uh, and, I, and I, I don't, if I had to do media balance for the rest of my career, I would shoot myself now. <laughs> but some people seem to be happy to repeat the same stuff over and over and say, as I said in my last paper, now I'm doing it with this slightly different population. See, I told you so. Send me some more grant money. And, and there, that's, there are many people who have built their careers on that, and I'm not sure they can afford yeah. to find anything positive, really. Yeah, we really didn't care how this came out, which no. is a great way to do research. <laughs> and it's unfortunately remarkably rare. Yeah. Yes, sir. You may have mentioned this, but I think I, I missed it. Uh, were you um, asking people where they played video games or on what kind of a device? Yeah. Yeah, we did ask um, about which, you know, did they use um, a console, a handheld, or a, or a computer? And most kids did at least two of those things. Originally, we were going to try to look at, well, did they play Grand Theft Auto on, on the console or on the PC? And we realized that would just be too complicated. That was one of the things we really struggled with is how do we 
make this simple, but not, not make it so simple that it loses its usefulness. Well, we find most kids are doing more than one of those things. Certainly, it makes sense that there will be somewhat different effects, and it's easier to play in a group with a console, et cetera. Uh, but we did try to look at least at the context in terms of our, who are they playing with and, and scratch the where, surface Where? Were they there. playing at home? Were they playing at yeah, a friend's? Yeah, ki- most kids uh, were playing sometimes at home, sometimes at a friend's house. That was the typical. But you raise another interesting point. When you talk about where, until you had the massively multiplayer online types of games, where was probably just where you were. Yeah. But there may be a new definition of where when you're doing stuff online. Yeah. Depends on what you're trying to measure. Yeah, we had kids who were in, you know, poor areas in Revere and Chelsea who had, you know, Xboxes or Playstations. They said, yeah, I, I play online with people I've never met, you know, they, in other countries, other states. And they, thought, they felt it really broadened their horizons. Yeah, I thought it, it probably really does. Cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. When people are playing people in another country, yeah, and there were some people who were really studying only online games and the social, the, the social aspects and the motivations for playing online games, which is a whole other area. Uh, this, this is just you know, fragmenting, and there's just more and more stuff to study. Well, we should probably let them off the hook, and there's food awaiting us at Senior House. Um, wonder what's... Well, we'll wander over yeah. there, and we can answer some more Thank questions. Thank you very much for coming.